step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. My sound bed just didn't play there, so I could—I guess I could have started humming, but I'll spare you that this morning. And we'll figure out what it is with the music by the time we get to the end of the show. Thank you for joining us today. Interesting show today, I think. Well, of course, I'm prejudiced. I think they're all interesting. I'm Heather Stark, and I'm your host for Three Women, Three Ways. And we're doing a show today on health care. Different aspect, I think, for the last, oh gosh, you know, five years at least, we've been talking about health care, but we've been focusing on accessibility and affordability. What can people afford? Can everybody get health care that they need? And then we, you know, went into this new era of health care reform. But again, the focus for most discussions that those of us outside of the field have <clears throat> focused on accessibility and affordability. Well, it turns out there's much more to it than that, and we're going to talk a little bit about those other aspects of healthcare. One of the things that made me think of this topic is uh, my physician that I've had for 20 years retired, and her associates uh, took over her practice, and then about, uh, oh, I don't know, six months later, they decided to go to a concierge practice which we can talk about later, but I didn't want the concierge practice, so I had to find a new physician. Went locally and discovered that I had an appointment with a physician's assistant, which is fine, um, but I just didn't know that. They kept referring to her by her first name. And then when I got there, when, uh, I had like two or three visits there and um, discovered that I, I every time I went there, there was no doctor. And finally, I just asked them. I said, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the care that I'm getting, but is there a doctor here? And that made me start to think about, you know, I, I know so many people who go to physician's assistants now. Um, so that's something that's a little bit different. I'm not sure if it coincides primarily with the Affordable Care Act, but it's a little different. And so I started looking at some of the other things that were a little different and discovered that there were a lot of them. So I decided to do this show today, and I'm very fortunate because I have as a guest Lyle Larson. Lyle is um, a a preeminent uh, physician's assistant and Ph.D. and just all sorts of impressive stuff. I have a CV in front of me, and I must say it's impressive, it's extensive, and it might be easier for me to just have Lyle explain a little bit about himself and his work. Welcome, Lyle. Well, good morning, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. So well, you want thanks me to, for joining us. You want me to explain it, what I do for a living, huh? Yes, yes. Could you oh. do that? And we have, oh, 15 seconds? No. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm in an academic institution. I'm, in, I'm here at the University of Washington uh, Medical Center here in Seattle. Um, I'm on the faculty of the School of Medicine and, um, and practice uh, in the Department of Electrophysiology. So my primary role here is to instruct uh, uh, cardiology residents and fellows on how to implant permanent pacemakers and implantable defibrillators. It's uh, not exactly why I went into this profession. I actually um, uh, graduated from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in 1983. So back in the day, my uh, my goal was to go out into a small rural community and and pretty well function as a as a primary as a you know an old country doc, if you will. Due to uh, just due to the way that uh, things happen and life starts, I ended up in a uh, specialty and then subspecialty uh, practice. Um, came to the University of Washington in 1986, and have uh, spent half of my time in cardiology, the other half of my time in cardiothoracic surgery, and also uh, have an interest in administration. So um, I've been the uh, chief uh, physician assistant here at the University of Washington for. Uh, the past 15 years or so. 
Wow. And you have, uh, is it fair to say that your focus is scientific or sociological? What What is your philosophical approach? Uh, my philosophical approach uh, is uh, is two-pronged. One is on an academic uh, level how do how do we teach and how do adult learners learn particularly um, learning uh, a profession like medicine and the other interest is second the other interest is one of administration particularly health care administration um, how is it that we have gotten to where we are what are we doing in order to move us forward and are we doing the right thing so those are my primary interests Okay, so do you want to answer those questions for us in 25 words or less? <laughs> are we doing the right thing? I'm, I don't. Uh, are we doing the right thing? I think that we are trying. Um, however, I'm not really certain that we um, that we are are on the right track. And uh, yeah, before I proceed any further, I need to to provide a disclaimer to make sure that the listeners know that uh, the opinions I give are mine alone and do not reflect those of the University of Washington. Uh, so of just, just to make sure. Yep. And and you are allowed to have your own opinion. We <laughs> <laughs> we value those separate opinions, actually. Um, <clears throat> so as I said in my introduction, what brought me here was my personal um, little journey in this, this changing healthcare environment. One of the things that absolutely shocked me, and, and then it made sense, is as a woman and as a woman of a certain age, um, I'm used to going in and being told, okay, you have a mammogram every year or two years. You have a pap smear every, you know, two years or every year or two years or whatever it is. Um, you have your colonoscopy every three or four years or whatever. Um, when I went in to this new uh, uh, physician's assistant, um, I said, well, I haven't had a pap smear in like three or four years. And she said, well, at your age, you don't need one. And I went, oh, really? You're not at, at risk for that type of cancer anymore after you reach a certain age? And she said, oh, yes, you're at risk. It's just that the cancer is so slow-growing that you'll probably die before it would kill you anyway. And I went, how slow is slow, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I plan on living another 30 years, you know, years are here. I mean, how long does this cancer take to grow? And is your definition of long the same as my definition of long? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I mean, who decides these things? And is this new? This is unfortunately this is not new. This is um this is where medicine has been heading for the past 20 years. So if you if you are old enough to remember the days of Marcus Welby MD and um and television shows like that where the doctor would come in, the doctor would make all the decisions, everyone would do whatever the doctor said and and that was that. Um, you know, that's a lot of the perception that particularly the older baby boomer, boomers and the greatest generation still function under. That's not how medicine is, is, is currently practiced, however, because medicine has advanced more in the past 50 years than it has in the past 5,000 years. And there's just too much information for one person to try and hold in their head. Even even walking around with an iPad or a, or a BlackBerry or an iPhone, any kind of PDA, you can't keep up. So what has happened is there have been several government agencies over the past 20 years that have developed um, guidelines and protocols. And so we are now reimbursed for practice based on how well we find we follow those guidelines and those protocols. These guidelines and protocols are oftentimes scientifically based. Other times they're based on consensus. In other words, there's no good data, but the best guess of the experts should be that we follow this guideline. And so that's how we are practicing medicine today. Now, the unfortunate thing so, is... And, and excuse me for being mm -hmm. a, a bit of a libertarian here, but mm -hmm. a government agency then is mm -hmm. tasked with deciding the standards for when I get my PAP test. Well, government agencies like the National, uh, you know, like um, uh, National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute, um, um, the Center for Disease Controls, um, 
any number of, of government agencies all come out with, with guidelines. A U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, for example, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So any number, any number of groups. And they also work in conjunction with professional organizations like the American Heart Association, uh, the American Cancer uh, society and 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 whatnot. So, so we we know so, that it it's cost a lot of money to practice healthcare. We and yes. and the 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 hope is that by using guidelines, we can alleviate some of those costs without uh, without uh, missing diagnoses. The problem with that, as a layperson, that I see is that that's fine if you fit the demographic. That's fine if you are average. But what happens if you're a, um, uh, oh, I'm thinking of the, because breast cancer runs on, on in my family, I'm thinking of my daughter. Um, what happens if um, she feels that she needs um, something other than the typical, oh, that's not a good example. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, how about gallbladder disease? Gallbladder disease we typically think of as the the female fat in 40, at least that's what they used to say, um, that the, that's the demographic for gallbladder disease. What happens if you're a 40-year-old plump woman who starts getting that pain in that general um, part of your body and the assumption is, ah, you know, she fits the demographic for a gallbladder problem. Mm-hmm. But what happens if it's pancreatic cancer? Well, they're convinced that we're going to start treating you and, and examining you and all that kind of stuff uh, based on the bottom line, which is we're not going to throw all these tests at you because chances are it's a gallbladder. Um, well, that's, what happens that's, to uh, her? Yeah, that's the frustration that, that uh, as, you, as you alluded to, the lay public has that frustration, and the medical profession has that frustration as well. If you don't follow guidelines more and more frequently, you don't get reimbursed. Now, mm-hmm. one of the most difficult things that we have as practitioners is convincing uh, the payers that guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. They're things that you need to think about before you make a diagnosis or before you recommend a treatment plan. So they're, they're guidelines. They're not gospel. Unfortunately, um, when you deal with um, some insurance carriers, you have to uh, justify everything that you do, and it becomes uh, it becomes a challenge to be able to uh, to get the care that your patients really need. Patients really have to be advocates for themselves, and they have to become knowledgeable about these standards of care in case they don't fit them, it seems to me. And not everybody's capable of being a, a medical advocate for themselves or for anyone else. Um, so what does... A, a patient do what happens if I'm that forty year old plump lady and I go, you know what, my aunt Susie had gallbladder disease. This is different. Why do they keep telling me to wait? You know, three weeks, come back for the ultrasound, and then we're going to mm-hmm. do this, and then we're going to mm-hmm. do that, and six months later we find out it's pancreatic cancer, and there's not a darn thing they can do about it. Sure. Well, the best thing that a patient can do to to patients have to be advocates for themselves. And and I encourage anyone, anyone who is a patient, and that means all of us, that whenever you see a healthcare provider, um, you make a list of questions and take that list in with you. Personally, when I have patients see me, I like lists because that way I know the patients are thinking about their own health care. They're taking responsibility for their own, own health care. And, and quite honestly, many times they will think of questions that I failed to ask them. So the first thing to do is uh, is you have to step up to the plate. You have to be your own advocate. Um, as as physicians, uh, PAs, nurse practitioners become more and more busy, um, now that we have another 32,000 or 32 million uh, people with insurance who are all wanting health care now, um, oftentimes the amount of time that you spend with a health care provider is shortened and and you end up in a situation where it's problem-based medicine. So you come in, you see a provider for one problem and one problem only. You you cannot allow that to happen. You have to bring a list in. You have to make sure that you that your provider knows what your questions are, what your concerns are, and we understand that sometimes patients don't really know what they want when they come in. They come in because they have a pain. They come in because 
one of their friends had an illness and they think they have the same symptoms. So um, that's our responsibility to tease those things out, but it's the patient's responsibility to express what their concerns are so that we can help them. Well, it's all well and good to say, well, the patient, this is your responsibility. This is your part of the deal. Problem being that, as I said, not everybody has the education, um, quite frankly, the intellect, the um, understanding. Not everybody can do that for themselves. Is there such a thing as, you know, like uh, there there used to be the Renta-Yenta program, you know, where, I don't know if you heard of that, that was back in the Midwest many years ago, but a woman actually um, uh, made a business of, you know what, you have a complaint with a company, I'll handle that complaint for you. I'll be you talking to them and complaining and seeing if I can get some action. Um, I've I've um, often thought that people should have divorce yentas so that they can distance themselves a little bit from the emotion and have this person go in there and advocate for you. Is there such a thing as a health care yenta, somebody who can go and advocate for the patient with the uh, yeah, they're called they're called family members. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and if you're fortunate so, enough so, to have one of those, if you're fortunate enough to have a family member, you you can oftentimes learn more about uh, about a patient's concerns from the family uh, than from the patient, particularly in the older boomers and the uh, and the greatest generation. Now, with the Gen X, Gen Y, and the millennials, they're not shy at all to tell you what they think and what they what they believe is going on. <laughs> So you have to, you know, you have to adapt, uh, you know, as a practitioner, you have to adapt um, your interaction with the patient based on the patient's um, uh, psychological and uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, status. So, and, and I don't mean, I don't mean to, to belittle that in any way. It's just, you know, I talk no. to, I, I talk to, and if I have a patient who comes to my clinic, uh, to have his pacemaker checked for a routine visit, uh, a an electrical engineer is going to ask a lot more sophisticated questions, quite frankly, than I'm able to to answer regarding how that how his pacemaker works. Whereas, um, sure. whereas if you have a Russian immigrant um, who barely speaks English, um, they may they may not speak a word through the entire uh, clinical e- exam, other than um, trying to trying to find out what's how they're how they've been doing and how they're feeling through an interpreter who then again may or may not um interpret what the patient's concerns are adequately so so those are all frustrations yeah. and you know as practitioners we deal with those on a daily basis yeah so um well you know and as patients we have to to learn to deal with these things uh this is you know, I'm old enough where I remember where um, you got sick. I mean, I, I remember as a child, I, I um, reached it. My, my father was using a, a saw in the garage. He turned his head, and I touched a bare wire on that saw. And the next thing I recall is I was laying on the couch in my, my family's living room, and the doctor was there. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. this, this is how old I am. The doctor came to our house. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Um you know, um, so I mean, I go from that era up to today, where it's okay. I don't want to go to the emergency I, emergency room because it costs an arm and a leg, literally. And um, so, where do I get the healthcare? I have to. I have to bottom line everything. You know, um, okay, you can put a cast on my wrist, but what happens if I don't put the cast on my wrist? What's going to happen to my hand if I don't do that? Um, you know, I. I mean, it's like every single thing. I have to weigh and balance. Okay, I go in, um, I've, I've got a pain, and you're telling me don't worry about it, and I'm going, wait a minute, I've, I've been around the block long enough. This is an unusual pain, and this is something that, this is not something that I think is just ignore it. So how do I uh, advocate for myself, and how do I tell this practitioner that, no, you know what, I don't think so. I think this requires something something else. That's really tough to do, no matter what your educational level, no matter what your 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 personality. It's very very tough to go to a professional and say, no, I think I think you're wrong here. I think that this is something different, and I think we need to do more. Yeah, I agree. It is very it is a very tough and, and difficult thing to do. However, it's something that that you still uh, need to do. You have to be mm-hmm. persistent. It's it's you know it's. You think about things that uh, that intuitively should be easy, yet they're very difficult uh, sometimes for people to do. Things as simple as saying please and thank you, 
um, very easy to do, but very difficult for us to remember to do sometimes. And the same is true in in making sure that when you you see a healthcare provider, that um, that they listen to you and that they understand what it is that you're asking. Yeah. Um, and that every, you know, different people can can express themselves clear more clearly than others. So it's a whole issue. So that whole issue of of dealing with your health professional in this age, when he or she is getting pressure to do things following a standard format, following a standard uh, some standard procedures. Uh, that's a tough thing to ask anybody. It um, is a very difficult. Got thing. a little yeah, bit off my topic. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, it's very difficult. The other thing that it's, it's, and it makes it increasingly difficult when, when they're following guidelines, protocols, and they're doing it under contracted time restraints. Yes. Well, and that's that whole, that's that whole uh, thing. I, I about twenty years ago, we decided we got all mad at doctors. Maybe even thirty years ago, we got all mad at doctors because they were gods and they made big money, and we didn't like that. So somewhere along the line, we decided that they had to be chopped down to size. And in exchange, we turned over all this decision-making and profit-making to the insurance company middleman. Am I oversimplifying? <laughs> Do I sound bitter? <laughs> I, th- I think that, I think that um, um, although, yeah, I think that is a bit of a uh, simplification, although you know, are you oversimplifying it? No, not, not really. Um, when we, you know, when we look at the at the um the affordable care act one of the things that we that we oftentimes forget is that the um the entire title is called the patient protection and affordable care act so so the um so when we relied solely on the physician as the as the almighty um decision maker we we placed all of their trust in in him or her now we learned um we learned and there was a, a a pivotal paper that came out in late i believe it was in 1999 called called uh called crossing the chasm when when uh, some very very uh, intelligent and very uh, foreseeing uh, physicians looked at the uh, types of medical errors that were occurring here you know here in the United States you wouldn't think that a country like this would be ripe with medical errors but guess what it happens so mm-hmm. and so we took our cue from the airline industry and if you recall back in in 1977 there were uh, there was a, a horrible airline accident where two 747s collided with each other in Tenerife and the the when the uh, accident was broken down and looked at um it turned out to be pilot error and why was it pilot error well the crew that the co-pilot and the navigator that were in both planes um realized something was wrong but either one of them was afraid to speak up to the visit to the uh, to the co- to the pilot and in Cape, in in one of the airliners KLM the chief airline pilot was the safety officer for KLM and um and he was the one that was ultimately uh deemed to be responsible for that accident and so we have had similar situations with uh with uh, both physicians and surgeons who uh, who you know to go back to one of your terms earlier godlike um would make the decisions and um nurses and supporting personnel were would not question those decisions that's changed and but and, instead of if I may interrupt but instead mm-hmm. of changing and working on that particular issue Mm-hmm. We just took the whole the whole uh, wash tub full of health care and and started swishing it around. Uh, well, uh, well, why we did. did? Well, we did, and I think, and I think, and this is my this is my my personal take on it. Um, so, we've we've worked toward a team based approach to to medicine. And I think that, and I think that is a, a very, very good thing. So it's not just one person that's responsible for everything. So it's a team-based approach. But I think that, I think that the practice of medicine is very, very. It's it's very simple, yet it's very complex at the same time. And so it's very difficult to wrap your head around it. The way that I think, uh, I think of it, the way that I explain 
uh, to patients and to and to other healthcare practitioners when when I speak is that we oftentimes get confused. So so there are three things that we confuse. One is healing. And healing is an art. Healing and healing is something that we all do. We, you know, if if your child scrapes their knee, we we fix it. So healing involves uh, involves compassion. It involves empathy. It involves care. The second component is medicine, and medicine is a science. So the science of just exactly what happens on a cellular level when you have cancer or what happens with diabetes or pancreatic cancer, things like that. That's a science. And then healthcare is a business. So healthcare is the business of melding healing and the science of medicine together in a way that it can be delivered. And we keep forgetting that. We we don't realize that um that it, you have to be able to Function under all three, under all three uh, labels, and unfortunately, we have some that are better at one component than others. Um, and physicians, um, as a group, I believe, have um, have been forced to focus more on healthcare. And while while medicine continues to grow and grow and grow faster than they can keep up, and what takes the uh, you know what takes the back seat with those two is healing actually caring for the patient. So one of the things that the Affordable Care Act has done is mandated that we we all institutions have electronic medical records. And one of the things that I see on a daily basis that frustrates the day out, the daylights out of me is you go into an examining room to see a patient and you and you talk to the patient but you're not looking at the patient. Because you're typing everything into the computer. Now, why are you Mm -hmm. typing everything into the computer? Because you have to fill out the little checks, check boxes, and and whatnot in order to generate a clinic note that will be paid for by the insurance carrier or Medicare. So we're not so we're not yeah so so we're not treating the patient anymore. We're treating the chart. Well, and it seems to me that that's the way we're going. Um, can you know? I've been so negligent. I've been so interested in this topic and talking with you, Lyle. I've forgotten to throw out our phone number. If you have something you'd like to contribute to this conversation, and I hope you do, give us a call six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. That's six four six three seven eight. 0430, and uh, we also have a chat room you can go to, and um, love to have you uh, have you uh, join us there or ask a question online through the chat room. You can access that via our webpage. So, uh, again, for uh, 646-378-0430, join us, ask a question, um, make, give us your comments. One of the things that you're talking about here is that... Um, this whole idea of the business of providing health care, I see that, um, and I understand that, and I think one of the things that it's important for us to remember is a lot of people that I I talk with are so down on the business of health care, and on the business of anything, but you know what? We're in business, personally. Nobody is working I mean, we all have to pay for our groceries. We all have to pay for our buildings. And, yeah, you can say, well, your building is nicer than my building, and therefore you're making too much money. We can all say that. But the idea of having something be paid for is not an evil concept. You know, you you and I go to work every day, and we expect to be paid for that. Would we do it if we weren't paid? Maybe if we could. But, unfortunately, we all have to pay for our, our groceries and our transportation and our living expenses and blah, 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 blah. So... You know, it really bothers me when people um, say, well, it's a business and therefore somehow or other it's evil because money is involved. Money's involved with all of us. Um, so unless we're all willing to say we're evil, I think we just need to lay off the fact that, you know, health care and other things, you know, money is how we make things work. And it's not necessarily an evil concept. 
That's my editorial, Lyle. Do you like it? <laughs> I, Heather, Heather I, I do. I like it. I like it a lot because it's true. I mean, medicine is no different than than any other any other business, with one caveat. Suppose that you are a business person, and let's say let's say for example, let's say that you are you sell automobiles. And I come in and I purchase an automobile from you. You expect me to pay for that automobile, whether I pay out of out of pocket or whether I finance through um, through a, a bank or a lending company or whatever. And you get that payment, and then I take the car off the lot. That does not happen in, in medicine. In medicine, you come in, you are given services. You may or may not pay a copay at the time of those services and the remainder of those services are then billed through a third party and you hope to get paid within 60 to 90 days and yeah. emphasis on the hope but the control is no longer that evil godlike doctor that we decided 30 years ago we didn't like the, the control, control is, is now all in the hands of the insurance company the control is in the, is in hand is in the hands of the insurance companies who follow Medicare's lead, and Medicare, as we yeah. all know, is in the hands of the government. And so, yep. as Medicare goes, so goes uh, the health health insurance carriers. So when people yeah. look at when people look at you know why does healthcare cost so much money today, and they then they blame it on their physicians. The physicians are not making the the, no. the big salaries that they once did. The, you know there are so many middlemen in the process now that 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 is one of the reasons why we have seen boutique practices start springing up. So you know people people are are willing to pay to forego the middleman and have access to their to their physician 24/7 or yeah. um or know exactly who they're going to be uh calling if it's not the physician that's taking care of them then then his or her associate so you know exactly who's going to be taking care of you, care of you as compared to a lot of practices today when you see people on a regular basis or when you go to a clinic or a facility on a regular basis, you may be, you may see Doctor A this time, Doctor B the next time, Nurse Practitioner C the next time, PAD mm-hmm. the next time, and you don't have a clue when you go in for your clinic appointment who you're going to see. And I, well, you know, and that an, is holds that holds true whether you um, are going to a, a private office or a group health type of office, or you know, I mean, you're you're just not really sure. And and as I explained at the beginning of the show. You know, I've recently been in the position where I had to select a new uh, office to go to and uh, ended up seeing physician's assistants. And mm-hmm. clearly, I mean, I'm not going to insult physician's assistants here, Lyle. I'm not, really. But when I asked, I said, oh, this person is a physician's assistant. And they said, or I, I referred to the doctor as, as uh, doctor. And they said, no, she's not a doctor. She's a physician's assistant. And I went, oh, okay, well, can I see the doctor? And the the response was, the physician's assistants do everything and can do everything that the doctor can do. And so my response to that is, then why don't they call them doctor? Mm-hmm. I don't understand the difference here. I mean, I don't have okay. any objection to see, I mean, maybe if I had some, you know, um, Ubla ubla obscure disease. I would want to see the doctor particularly. I mean, I don't have sure. any objection to seeing the physician's assistant, but I think really, I mean, if it's if a physician's assistant, is I mean, they're they're interchangeable. Well, don't be ridiculous. Of course, they're not interchangeable. Um, you know, so why? What's this all about? <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> sure. So, um, so there are healthcare providers. Um, that are not MDs or DOs that provide health care to, to patients across the country. Um, and, and the MD and the DO are what we call doctor usually. Correct. And, yep. um, okay. and so um, 
the physician assistant profession began in the in the early 60s uh, when when medics were coming back from Vietnam and had a significant amount of medical knowledge. Yet there was nothing, no place to, uh, to for them to be able to continue to do what they were doing over there. So, um, so the uh, physician assistant program uh, profession actually uh, was born. Um, at, um, in North Carolina by a primary care physician who took these people under his wing. And um, and then here in Seattle, the medics program sprung up uh, very quickly afterwards. And there are over 150 PA programs across the country today, uh, uh, roughly 100,000 PAs practicing within the uh, United States today and in England and in the Netherlands um, uh, New Zealand, uh, soon Australia, and Japan. So, so this is this is something that is um, uh, taking off all over the world, and um, and the same is true with nurse practitioners. So, the nurse practitioners, uh, there are very large uh, uh, number of nurse practitioners. I don't know their numbers right off the top of my head, but uh, you can go. How is that to, different from physician's assistant? Oh, very. That's a very loaded question. You're going to get me in trouble here, aren't you? So, uh, so, I live to make chaos. Yes. Yes, you do. So, if you look at what uh, at what the state of Washington uh, Washington says regarding physician assistants and nurse practitioners, a physician assistant is educate, educated in a medical model as a generalist in medicine and in a team based model. The PAs are one out of four professions that are actually licensed to practice medicine, and those four professions are MD, medical doctor, DO, doctor of osteopathy, DPM, doctor of uh, podiatry, and uh, and PAs. They're certified. They take a they take a national certification exam, uh, which is administered by the NCCPA, the national. Uh, I can't remember what the initials are. It's been way too long, but um, um, they're board certified on a national level, and they practice with physician supervision, which can be defined as either direct, indirect, or off-site. So in your case, when you saw a PA... <laughs> which means over your shoulder, in the same room, that's, or you're on right. your own. <laughs> well... <laughs> But but they but they practice uh, but they practice under supervision. So so that PA is that PA is trained in a in a medical model similar to physicians, and and they can perform. Uh, they cannot perform every procedure that a, everything that a physician can do. That's a bit of an overstretch. But but um, but there's plenty of research to show that either a PA or NP can provide about 85% of what a physician can can provide in a in a general practice. Now, if you look at nurse practitioners here in the state of Washington, um, nurse practitioners um, are educated in a nursing model to independently assume responsibility and accountability for the care of patients and take that for okay. for what it's worth. They're nationally certified okay. in a specific specialty, so they can be certified in adult medicine, in pediatrics, in geriatric care, whatever. And then they function uh, not not under physician supervision, but they function under what's called a collaboration agreement. <laughs> so they can um, they and 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 these these definitions vary from state to state, but this is a pretty uh, pretty representative definition for both both professions. So a nurse practitioner in the state of Washington Washington could go out and hang his or her shingle and practice independently. Uh, PA, uh, a PA um, in the state of Washington or any state uh, could not and would not. Um, so, uh, they, but but you you can get excellent excellent care from either a PA or an NP, um, and there are studies that showed that the care provided is no is is no less. Um, uh, no less no less in quality than that of an of a, a medical doctor or a doctor of osteopathy in fact there are studies that show that patient satisfaction having either a pa or a nurse practitioner care for them is on the neighborhood of 90, 93% and the reason for that is the pa and the nurse practitioner oftentimes will spend more time with with the patient and the patient's family mm-hmm. than the physician well, and we like, you know, we meaning Americans, but, you know, those of us who, who seek health care, uh, we like to be um, mommied a little bit 
when we're looking for our health care. We want somebody to, you know, who will figuratively at least put the hands on the forehead and check on how we're doing and all that kind of stuff. And you don't get that terrifically often in today's health care environment. So I can see the appeal for somebody who can take more time, somebody who would be able to, um, you know, give more. I, I know that's probably a terrible analogy, but to give more of the mommying. Does that make sense? No. Well, it, no, it, it makes perfect sense. And um, and when you look at the fact that the Association of, of American Medical Colleges, um, <clears throat> you know, this was actually written into the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, we should say Patient Protection and Affordable Health Care Act, so we can remember you know, to protect the patients. Uh, is that uh, yeah? But I don't feel particularly protected by that. So well, <laughs> but, but, uh, I don't feel but, particularly uh, protected when I don't know who I'm going to or what their qualifications yeah. are. Well, you know, so so you know, uh, again, speaking you know for both PAs and nurse practitioners, the the Association of American Medical Colleges has predicted a shortage of of 150,000 physicians within the next 15 years, and that's going to happen at the same time that we have approximately 10 to 15 million seniors enrolling in Medicare over the next 10 years. So there are going to be a lot more patients out there. And and at the, so what the Affordable Care Act is includes is encouraging other professionals such as nurse practitioners and PAs to take a major role in providing health care to, to Americans. So the key, so what the hope of the policy is, is that these non-physician providers will primarily focus on, on will primarily focus on primary care, and but there will be some that seek to practice in advanced specialties, uh, such as such as me, for example. And when you look at every specialty, every medical specialty and subspecialty, you will not find one, including forensic medicine, where there is not either a PA or a nurse practitioner in that specialty. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I'm I'm looking at our time, and I, and, and I want to make one comment, which on um, on the physician shortage, um, simply because I don't think people realize this. Um, physician shortage is a direct link to this bottom line. Physicians spend how many years? Eight to twelve years getting their training, a couple hundred thousand dollars, if not more, in student loans and debt, da 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 da, and then they come out, and some insurance company says that our, you know. Averaged over an hourly basis for seeing their patients, you can make maybe you know what twenty bucks an hour if you're lucky. Why would anybody do that? Well, why that's would any? That, that's something that you know in an academic medical center we we deal with all the time. So if you you know and and I think that you've uh, and Heather I think you've hit the the nail on the head here in your observation because when you look at particularly. Start looking. We're talking about millennials here. So the millennials are in college. They're trying to decide what careers they want to go into. Now, if they decide to go into medicine, they go. To, they apply. They get into medical school, which is a four-year program. You get out of medical school. You have a four-year residency, and then you can go into primary care. Most people don't want to do primary care. They want to do specialty or subspecialty care because that's where the money is. So then after your four years of medical school, your four years of residency, then you do anywhere from a two- to four-year fellowship program after that residency. So you're talking about people being in school for anywhere from 10 to 12 years. When they get out of school, they're 200000 in debt, and it will take them their entire careers to pay back those student loans. And not only are they $200,000-plus in debt, but they're also in their early and mid-30s. You compare that person to someone who is in undergraduate school, decides to become a structural or an electrical engineer, goes to two years of graduate school, and they're out in their late 20s making as much as a physician without the responsibility of call, without the responsibility of making decisions that have somebody's life uh, life into balance. And, and, you know, people are not, are not stupid. They, you know, they know I can make as much money with a lot less uh, effort and sure. a lot less responsibility. So we are seeing it's, it's becoming difficult to get good candidates in medical centers, at medical schools. It's becoming more difficult to find residents to go into specific practices. 
Well, and compare that with, let me see, you go to business school for four years, you come out, and um, you're qualified to be an executive from an insurance company who determines uh, or has a huge say in determining what those doctors get paid. Mm-hmm. And you're on a career track as an insurance executive, and um, most of those insurance executives make well into the six figures. Um, so, you know, just so that you understand. I'm not talking about yeah. the people that answer the phone at the insurance company, you know, when you call for a claim. I'm talking about the insurance executives. So, okay, I'll get off that soapbox. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, for, for, for me, okay, if somebody's going to get rich off of health, providing health care, I'd rather it be the actual person who's providing the health care. That's just my prejudice. You know, I'd rather the motivator of the dollar sign be with the physician who has to decide whether or not he's going to, um, you know, palpate this quadrant or whatever, you know, uh, rather well, than some uh, insurance executive. But you that's know, I, me, I, okay? I, I agree with that, although I have, you know, I, I have, you know, Ronald Reagan's voice in the back of my head when he used to say, trust but verify. So, we had that system. We had that system, and, and and unfortunately, it doesn't make any difference whether you, you know, you are an unemployed, um, homeless person, or whether you're a CEO in a multi-million-dollar organization. There, you know, people will try and push the system to the best of, the, to, of their advantage. And we, there, there are yeah. plenty of physicians that have done that. There are physicians that are doing that today with, and are being caught with uh, Medicare fraud. So paying the, paying the provider is a great yeah, idea. Yeah, but okay, but let me jump in here. Okay, Medicare fraud um, is one of my hot buttons. Because mm-hmm. about 20 years ago, there was an act called the Kennedy-Kassenbaum Act. Mm-hmm. Before that, in order to be convicted of Medicare fraud, you, they had to prove that you were trying to defraud. Correct. After Kennedy Kassenbaum, if you build something, now mind you, as a physician in a physician's office, you know the billers for the for the they can call Medicare and say, okay, we did this procedure, both of these codes work, which should we use? Blah blah blah. They're both about the same, and you could be advised of which to use. Well, mm-hmm. if you use that, and you could use it for two years for the same types of procedures, and then Medicare would go, wait a minute, you know, let's go back and look at this. Nope, that, that isn't the best code to use. It should have been the other one. That physician's office has just committed Medicare fraud. Well, not only you, after not Kennedy only that. Bomb, you no longer, there was no longer the obligation to prove that somebody was trying to actually defraud the system. Yes, and so it's has actually gone. So I get my up. It's gone Go beyond that now. As a provider, if we overbill, we can be penalized. If we mm-hmm. underbill, we can also be penalized. Yeah. You know, so you have no control. I mean, basically, you have no control. You we have no control, and, and CMS, Center for Medicaid Services, seems to change the rules almost on a monthly basis, and it is your responsibility well, as a provider you, you, to keep up. Yeah, and you, and you call in to get advice. You're saying, okay, I'm not sure which of these. I don't want to get in trouble. Tell me which of these. And the person who answers the phone can tell you one, and she has no – it's like the IRS. They they are under no obligation to be accurate. If you follow their advice and they weren't accurate, it's all on you. And that's why uh, that's why most institutions actually have a staff of coders now. So uh, you as a provider – uh, we'll we'll see a patient and dictate a note, and before that note, before that patient is billed, it goes to a coder, so the coder can make sure that you put in the appropriate things in your note, so they can bill at a at the appropriate level. And if you forget yeah. to put something in, they will kick it back to you and say you you need to put some put this in, or if you put too much in and you try and and you and you check the box where you, it would be billed at a at a less at a lower level, either because of an anonymous mistake or you just didn't think it was really necessary to bill that patient that much, um, you get in yeah. trouble. And and God forbid if you try to give somebody a break. Oh, I have somebody here who doesn't have any insurance. You know what? I'm just going to put it down as a short visit. Uh-uh. You can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't give people that. a break. No. No. And, and, no. no. And, um, and the so, Affordable anyway, Care Act but prevents that, that from happening. Yes, 
So you, you as a physician, as an individual, as a practitioner, you can't make the choice to give somebody a break. And so you when cannot. we're talking about healthcare costs, why aren't we talking about all that middleman and all that layer and layer and layer and layer that's between the patient and the, the actual healthcare? We're not talking about that. Anyway, um, I am woefully negligent here, Lyle, because I'm having such a good time, you know, ranting and raving. Um, one of the big concerns that I have about health care is victims of domestic violence, victims of sexual mm-hmm. assault. Mm-hmm. Um, how is all of this changing and all of these layers, how is that actually impacting the person who has been assaulted and victimized when it comes to receiving health care? Well, I think that uh, um, I, I think people in that category, um, um, it, it, it's a it's a tragic thing to have happen, and and they tried to address that in the uh, Affordable Care Act. In fact, you know they put in um, the Institute of Medicine um, and uh, put in. Um, eight recommendations for clinical services specific to women, and one of those was interpersonal and domestic violence screening and counseling. Now, having said that, um, there, there, physicians um, historically have not been very well trained in medical school on how to address that. That is, thank goodness that has changed. Uh, particularly when you when you think that uh, 35% or so of women in this country are either raped, assaulted, or stalked by intimate partners at some time during their lives, so over a third of, mm-hmm. of women are, go through this. And but for healthcare practitioners, um, you know, we we have not done well in talking to patients to to ask them if they come in for blood pressure check they have hypertension and and we fail to ask them if they're safe at home then we do that patient a, a disservice so there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of education and training that's that's being provided for healthcare providers to overcome that and um and and clinicians you know we need to acknowledge that the patient you know if the patient states that they're in an abusive relationship we need to acknowledge that we need to uh, but most people aren't trained to to help them so it's it's critical that as clinicians you know we we offer them um a referral source to go to things like the national domestic violence hotline um and a number of other things but um um it, it, this is something that i i certainly struggle with um because i you know i it, it's very very tempting just to say well um get out of that relationship or you know go find the the person that's abusing her and and give them a piece of your mind but you 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 certainly cannot do that so you know mm-hmm. we have it, yeah, it's, I had, it's, a, I, it's a difficult problem it is and thank you for pointing up the the uh bringing up the uh, the idea and reinforcing the idea that it's not that easy it's not something you can just walk away from um i had a a friend who once was complaining about one of her friends and said well she's in this abusive relationship she won't leave why won't she leave and i said well have you asked her and my friend said well she's and and my friend was so disparaging i'll never forget this my friend was so disparaging of this third person and she said oh she says she thinks he's going to kill her and i looked at my friend and i said then he probably will you know i don't discount the notion that she's staying there to save her life most people who are killed when they're leaving domestic violence, are killed when they're leaving or trying to leave domestic violence situations. So thank sure. you for acknowledging that that's not a simple a simple little decision to just pack the bag and get up and go. Um, um, but you know, there was a, another concern that... There was a, a very interesting um, um, article out of the New England Journal of Medicine in of November of 2012 entitled uh, Intimate Partner Violence, What Physicians Can Do. And they reckon there are five steps that they recommend uh, uh, physicians take, and it's it's well worth the read um, um, if people have time have the time, and and it should be easy to to look up on or Google. Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to give that citation again? Sure, the New England Journal of Medicine, and um, it is uh, in the November twenty ninth, two thousand and twelve issue. Okay. And the, All right. and the title is um, Intimate Partner Violence, What Physicians Can Do. Yeah. And uh, just 
you know, for people tend to people who work in the field tend to use intimate partner violence more than domestic violence anymore. We're trying to segue into something that's more descriptive and more accurate. However, most people still uh, most people still think domestic violence when they think you know that kind of uh, of um, assault. Another question that I had is. You know, amidst all of this turmoil and amidst all of these new changing standards of care and whatever you know that we're that we're seeing, um, when you encounter you as a practitioner encounter a woman that you suspect is in uh, a dangerous personal situation, interpersonal uh, relationship, you can't just come out and say. Are you in a relationship like this? Are you safe? Because, of course, the response is going to be, of course. Of course I'm safe. Yes, I'm fine, you know, um, because it's such a loaded question. What kinds of things can or do you as a practitioner do to try and help folks like that? Or can you? I mean, I, you know, I imagine that's tough. I mean, you suspect something, and yet this person will not come right out and say it because of all sorts of legitimate reasons on her part. What can you do? Well, it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's very difficult. Um, you know, when I was a, a patient a few years ago, I was um I was asked, "Do you feel safe at home?" That was one of the questions that that um, the nursing staff asked me as I was admitted. Um so that's a and I I took that as a cue, so I used that as well. And um and another question you could ask is, "Are you afraid of your partner or anyone else?" And they will either say yes or no. If you, if they say no, then what you can do is hope that it at least triggers something in them to to mm-hmm. rethink, to reconsider sure. whether they want to talk about it, either to you at this time or an, or to someone else at another time. It it gets them to thinking, and and if they say yes, then you ask. Do you want to talk about it? Is this something that you want to discuss, or would you like for me to put you in contact with someone who can help you with this? Um, and that is that is about the best you can do, um, unless you are trained uh, in in this sort of thing. And I certainly am not, and 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 by no means would I consider myself an expert at it. Um, but I but I do know where I can find resources for them. So that is my role as a practitioner is to try and identify it, uh, and if it is present, help them get help if they want the help. Sometimes they will they will say yes. More often than not, they'll they'll say no. But at least it gets them thinking. It 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 plants the seed that hopefully yes. uh, hopefully will grow into something that they can act on. Okay, and then getting back to our previous discussion, then do you have to check off a special box um, in order to get any kind of reimbursement for seeing that patient? Unfortunately, yes. Oh. So then that whole privacy issue comes up. Of course, that comes up with everything, and everybody says, oh, but it's private, it's private. If you ever look at that um, um, form that you sign saying that privacy policy, you know, read that sometimes. Basically, it says, we will keep all of your information confidential except for what we post on the Internet and somebody can hack if they want to, except for what we can give to your insurance company, except for what we can give to state investigators, except for what we can give to other doctors who inquire, except for what... I mean, why are they wasting the paper with that confidentiality statement that they make you sign? Because it's required by law. Required by law, yeah. And so where is our health care dollar going? Is it going between the patient and the and the the practitioner? No, it's going to all this other stuff in between. You know, I mean, it just drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I've vented. Sorry about that, Lyle. <laughs> um, we have chewed up an entire hour, Lyle, and I really appreciate your patience with me. I appreciate your depth of knowledge on this issue. Is there anything that you would like to toss out briefly before we end our segment? Well, I, I think that I think the the take home message is is that no one really knows what the right answer is yet. 
Um, we are trying. Um, we are we are succeeding in some areas. We are not succeeding very well in other areas, and this is going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort, and unfortunately, a lot of money in order to to be able to get to a point where everyone can agree. And I would caution people that when they listen to the news and they listen to sound bites, that you will find people who are who are zealots for the Affordable Health Care Act, and you will find people who are who are absolutely adamant that it's it's the worst thing in the world since tornadoes and hurricanes <laughs> yeah. and, and earthquakes. And the truth is, it is the devil. <laughs> the truth is, the truth is somewhere in between. And. Yeah. And it's going to require a lot of a lot of work. It's going to require a lot of bipartisan work in our in our federal and state governments, and it's going to require a lot of work on our parts as consumers of health care to make sure that we are that our voices are heard. And thank you, and Lyle. Thank to. you so much for that. And my my thing that I'm going to throw out there is have somebody go with you. If you have a friend, if you have a family member, if you are dealing with some sort of health issue, have somebody go with you to be your advocate and to help you advocate for yourself. That's my Absolutely. advice. And Absolutely. Lyle, I end our segments each week with a uh, quote. And I don't know how you're going to feel about this quote, but it's from a high place. It's from Voltaire. The art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. That Thank is so much so us. true. So, Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about animals and what our animals do for us. And don't forget, if you missed the segment, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash three women, three ways, and catch the reruns and the archive programs. And that's three as in digit. Thank you so much for joining us. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs>